the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord remains forever. Thank you, Matt, for reading our sermon passage for today. If we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, my name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. And we're going to continue our Mark series today with the passage Matt just read for us. So we're looking at the parable of the wicked tenants, so-called and two exchanges that Jesus has with the religious leaders in Jerusalem leading up to his death at the close of Passion Week. So keep your Bibles open there to verses 1 through 27 of Mark 12. I think it's safe to say a lot of us last Sunday evening were watching the Super Bowl. And if you were confused about the new extra rules regarding overtime play, you're in good company. Because so were the 49ers. Go Chiefs, right? Now, I am not, many of you know, I am not a super knowledgeable NFL football guy. But even my uninitiated uh, self as I'm watching the 49ers with the new rules explained, win the coin toss, choose to go first, settle for a three, Uh, three points for the field goal, knowing that Mahomes is going to have an opportunity to score and everything is on the line. Even even my mind was like, something seems a little bit off here. I'm not sure I would have gone for the field goal. And the online analysis of of this was scorching, not towards the players who in interviews, not sure I would admit it if I was in their shoes, admitted to not knowing or having drilled or talked about those new rules, The analysis and discussion online was scorching in relation to the coaches of the 49ers. Whereas the Chiefs have talked really publicly about having, from the very beginning of the season, been drilling and really emphasizing what they're going to do, talking through practicing what they're going to do in that very scenario, uh, the 49ers coaches um, had not even really discussed it with their players. So people online correctly pointed out, like, man, you guys coaching it, working at the highest level of football, you should have known better, and you should have done better. Many have noted that throughout the Gospels, Jesus saves his most scorching rebukes, his hardest sayings for the religious leaders of Israel here in Jerusalem, who we're going to see him interacting with in our sermon passage today. The contrast between Jesus' interactions with individual sinners, think, you know, I don't, I don't condemn you. Get up, take your mat, walk, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. The, the difference between Jesus' interactions one-on-one with sinners in his interaction with the religious establishment in Jerusalem who he is frustrated with for just the the systemic injustice and corruption and self-interest that characterize the Pharisees and the Sadducees there. Think, you know, you, you brood of vipers. We never see him talk that way to an individual. You whitewashed tombs. You're just like your daddy the devil, right? This is, this is tough stuff that he lobs at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious rulers there in Jerusalem. And we see in our, our story today, both in the parable and then in the two conversations that follow, we see Jesus helping them understand you should know better. You should know better. 
You don't know the power of God and you don't know the scriptures, and that's why you're asking these silly questions, Jesus is going to say. So chapter 12, it ties together. Charles will continue next week this series of disputes that follows this parable in which Jesus is going to point the finger at these religious leaders. But I think we can learn from how they don't respond to Jesus today. At its heart, this series of stories is a warning And we, learning from the the tragedy of how they responded to Jesus in uh, the story of Mark's gospel, we can learn how to properly respond to Jesus. And here's the big idea today. Uh, We can learn from this string of stories that we should receive Jesus, we should honor him above all others, and we should find hope in his power over death. So I'll say that again. We should receive Jesus in the way that they didn't, as the promised son of the father. We should honor him above all others and we should find hope in his powers. Let's break down those lessons. Again, look at first the first 12 verses as we are reminded through this parable to receive Jesus as the son sent by the father. Matt read these verses for us just a moment ago, but in this parable, which scholars have called a parable of judgment, in this parable, this story is going to lay a backdrop for the arguments that follow and for the exchanges that follow, exposing the hearts of these men who are coming, not because they're genuinely interested to talk about Jesus, because they want to trap him, destroy his public credibility, or get him to say something treasonous to give them an excuse to arrest him and put him to death, because that's been the plan for a good while now. So he tells them this story that maybe in your mind, as Matt was reading, like like me this week, as Jesus is telling this parable, my mind goes to 2 Samuel, where David is confronted by the prophet Nathan about having committed adultery and having murdered one of his best friends. And when Nathan goes like, you are the man, David repents. But when these dudes, they realize that, wait, He's talking about us. They just get even angrier at Jesus. So Jesus is exposing the heart of unbelief here in this parable. They understand the parable because it's an easy parable to understand. The owner of the vineyard, of course, is God the Father. The vineyard symbolizes God's special covenant people, Israel. And the parable, it uses imagery and language drawn from Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 is this beautiful passage which pictures God as this loving vine dresser who has has cared for and taken care of and provided for and protected his, his vineyard, Israel, even though they have borne no fruit. And the tenant farmers, they represent the religious leaders. Think again about how Jesus, he is saving his, his harshest criticisms and condemnations for these leaders who have mismanaged his vineyard. And this parable's imagery would have been very, very familiar to people in first century Palestine, this whole idea of tenant farming. We'll talk a little bit more about this uh, in a moment as we talk about the Roman subjugation of Jerusalem and Israel and the powder keg of division and disunity that this caused amongst the Jewish people. But, But in this day, Rome ruled Palestine and almost all land, especially farmland, if you were a person that lived in a house or farmed a piece of land in Palestine and you were a Jewish person, you were a renter. 
And you had to give some of your crops, you had to give some of your profits back to the owner of that land who probably was some rich guy who lived off somewhere else in the Roman Empire. And the system frustrated the Jewish people. There are actually historical documents, carvings, papyrus, that talk about violent tenant renty uprisings in this area of Palestine. So as Jesus begins telling this story, it would have been very familiar circumstances and images to his listeners. Of course, the servants who he speaks of as being first rejected and then humiliated and progressively as the tenant farmers they get worse and they worse get worse they begin to kill the messengers and the servants of the owner of the vineyard this symbolizes the prophets of Israel many of whom who were rejected by the, both the leaders and the people but primarily for our purposes uh, the priests and the kings of Israel as they called the people of Israel to repent and for generations upon generations they didn't and they said no in the Old Testament, we are not given some information about how some of the prophets met their deaths, but traditions communicate to us like some of the like really gory, terrifying depths that the prophets endured. There's a tradition that Isaiah himself was sawn in half at the end of his life. We have no way to really confirm or deny that, but we know that the people did not always respond positively to the prophets. So ultimately, this is a parable of warning. This is a, a parable in which Jesus is wanting to show these religious leaders like, hey, this is a big deal that you are rejecting me. Your life is on the line. Destruction is imminent, he says. So he's trying to, to help them understand the error of their ways. But while this is at at its core, a warning message. On the flip side, it's also a wonderful invitation to us as we think about the heart of God expressed in this parable. I want you to notice three things in this parable. First, we see and we're reminded of the patience of God towards us in this parable. This man, this, uh, this owner of the vineyard in Jesus' story who plants and owns this vineyard and deeply cares for this vineyard and his tenants and gives them opportunity upon opportunity to do the right thing and to listen to him. This is God's heart towards us. And as Jesus invited his original listeners to like, like think about the story of redemption, think about how slow to anger God was towards Israel, his heart towards us is exactly the same. God is a patient God. When we, when we fail, when we, when we sin, as all of us did this week, we all fell short. We were all jerks to somebody. We were all hypocrites this week. We all uh, have a load of sin to come before God and confess this week. But man, as we fell short of the glory of God this week, God was patient with us. He is patient towards us. He woos us. He's not like the, the people. We spend, a, I, I assume, like, like me, like, you know a lot of angry people. And we project upon God sometimes. Some of us had angry parents. Some of us have angry bosses. Some of us have, have angry people in our lives. And we project that sort of response to our inadequacies and failings upon how God's 
orientation towards us is. And God is not like that at all. He is patient towards His people. He's patient towards you. He's not angry, frustrated, surprised. He is never going to react in a knee-jerked moment of anger towards you. His heart towards you is compassion and mercy. So we see in this patient vine dresser's um, heart towards His people, we see the patience of God towards us. The second thing we see in this parable before we move on and we should be reminded of is we're reminded of the love of God. As the, as the man sends his son, let's read again in verse 6. He says, um, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, the angry tenant, murderous farmers, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Maybe like me, you're reading this and you're like, why, why would he send the son? Like he knows what's going to happen. It's not going to be surprising when his son meets the same end of his servants, as his servants. And I think we're to understand here that the vine dresser, the vineyard owner, sends his beloved son because he loves his vineyard. He cares so much that he is willing to put the life of his son on the line for his people, for his vineyard. And that's God's heart towards us. We know it's, it's not complicated to see the connection here between the sending of the beloved son in this parable and the sending of Jesus. God the Father, this is, this is the gospel. God the Father loved us so much that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He showed his love for us and that while we were his enemies, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8, Christ died for us, his only son he sent for us, knowing that he would die. And Christ came knowing that he would die. And of course, in the glorious reversal we see in this story, that the rejected son, he becomes the cornerstone, quoting the Psalms. We know that that Jesus who died for us, he rose again and offers forgiveness and salvation to all who would trust in him. So the question for you this morning is, do you know the rejected son? Have you trusted in him? Have you believed in Jesus who went to the cross for our sins and in our place. That's where we see, that's where we're met with the perfect love of God. That's how we can know the love of God. So we're reminded of the patience of God, we're reminded of the love of God, and then finally we're reminded of the justice of God, the justice of God. If you look back with me at verses 9 and on, we're told this, after the tenants kill the son, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So in this, in this moment where we've been reminded of the patience and the love of God, we come to the stark reality that like in the end, the enemies of God are going to be destroyed. Like God is a God of justice. God is a God of righteousness. He is not going to let sin be swept under the rug. And there is going to be a day of reckoning for all people. Like all people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and answer for their actions. So do you know the, do you know the Son? That's, that's the only way you and I are going to have hope on that day, is to know the Son who was destroyed in our place, lest we be destroyed. Like, judgment is real. Hell is real. Jesus, he loved even these boneheaded religious leaders enough to warn them, like, you don't have to keep going down this road. Jesus taught more about hell and the final judgment than, than a lot of other subjects that we talk about more often. 
It's not fun to talk about. It's not enjoyable to discuss. But it's necessary for us to think about the reality of judgment. So God is a just God. Jesus is coming back one day. Are you ready for that moment? We're reminded of the patience of God, the love of God, and the justice of God. And we should receive Jesus in the way that they didn't. But secondly, as we continue on in our passage this uh, morning, um, we should first, we should receive Jesus. Secondly, we should honor Jesus supremely. We should honor Jesus supremely while obeying earthly powers. Notice three parts of this next exchange, this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees about taxes. Right? It's been said there's only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Well, this passage is about both of them. We're getting all the hot button topics today. And it's tax season, so talk with your CPA. But he says in verses 13 and 14, notice first the askers of the question. 13 says, And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and uh, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the ways of God. We know from our walk through Mark so far, we know about the Pharisees. So I'm not going to retread kind of the history and the theology of the Pharisaical movement at length. But we know that these are, in some, the political and religious right of Jerusalem, along with some of the Herodians, a very unpopular group of people who were pro-King Herod, kind of the puppet king dynasty over Palestine that Rome had established after they took over Rome a couple generations prior to this. So these leaders, uh, they have come. These Pharisees are the men who fastidiously obey both the law and all the added regulations and rules that interpreted the law and they viewed as binding on members of Judaism. So they come with this flattering talk that Jesus sees right through and we see, secondly, the, sincere, the insincerity of their question, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They're not actually interested in Jesus' thoughts on taxes and giving and worship and the central place of God in our lives, all that sort of thing. They are trying to trip Jesus up into saying something self-condemning. And they are trying to trap him into either identifying with the zealots. So if you understand the history, in this day there, there was a, a, we could call them a domestic terrorist group of sorts, the zealots in Jerusalem who looked back about 30 years prior to this when Rome had instituted an imperial census tax around 6 AD in Jerusalem. And it so humiliated and made the, um, the Israelite people angry that this guy named Judas of Galilee, he rose up. And he rose up and he he took up arms and he led a violent rebellion against the Roman overlords that was snuffed out. But there were a lot of people in Jesus' days who were looking back to the days of of Judas the Galilean. They were like, yeah, let's get that started again. So if he says or questions their need to, to pay taxes... He's going to, to basically get lumped in with the zealots. He's going to get arrested for, for treason or sedition, which he could be executed for. But if he says, yes, you need to pay your taxes, he's going to lose his public credibility. The average Joe, the Jewish person there sitting in the crowds listening to these exchanges, they're going to say, he's just a stooge of the government. He's pro-Rome. We don't need to listen to this guy. So Jesus 
they think that they have him trapped. Do we pay taxes or do we not? So, so here Jesus' answer to the question, picking back up in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he, Jesus, said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus, he diffuses the situation. He refuses to be trapped in their either or question. And he asks someone from the crowd in the conversation for a denarius. So this would be a small Roman coin, the denomination of which was about one day's wages for a Jewish person. And on it would have been a bust of Tiberius, the emperor at that time. Under the bust of Tiberius would have been this text, Pontifus Maximus, which was understood by that that the Roman emperor was semi-divine and that he was the high priest of the Roman cult. He was the mediator between God and man for everybody living in the Roman Empire. And that's a blasphemous... If you're a Jewish person, it's like, no, we're not down for that. Like, we do not think that he is that at all. It's a blasphemous thought. But Jesus, he takes this denarius and he says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. He's like, like, what is this denarius? Yeah, like, it's got Caesar's face on it. It's his. Give it to him. You have responsibilities towards the government, Jesus is basically saying. I don't absolve you of those responsibilities. But he says that ultimately we need to balance both our ultimate allegiance to God and our obedience to our responsibilities towards civil government and rulers. Give unto Caesar what's Caesar's. Give unto God what is God's. The Bible has a lot to say about our relationship to governing authorities. And keeping in mind the type of crazy guys that these Roman emperors were, as Charles, or not Charles, but um, yeah, Charles read for us at the beginning of our service, Romans chapter 13, where Paul, who was, by the way, beheaded by a Roman emperor, he was able to say this, everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that from God, and those that exist are instituted by God, so then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Cutting that passage a little bit short since we read it earlier, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, Paul, he communicates a similar thought. He says, first of all, then, I urge your Uh, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings, and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil life, uh, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. When you heard last week, I'm sure everyone's aware of this story, if you read about the special counsel report, about our president's health, in which claims were made, and there's disagreement here, about the validity of them, in which claims were made about the mental capacities of our president, about how he had memory issues, cognition issues, parenting conversations with the special counsel. Did you pray for his health? Have you ever prayed for a president who is 
a president that you didn't vote for? Or did you join in with the chorus of voices that just like dunked on him? Like, see, blah, blah, blah. Here's another evidence that I'm right and you're wrong, rah, rah, rah. You are supposed to pray for respect, honor, even people who you have wildly different opinions on, on very important political issues with. If, if you're a Republican, you need to pray for and honor Democratic politicians. If you're, a, if you're a Democrat, you need to honor and pray for Republican politicians. Peter, he says, likewise, in 1 Peter chapter 2, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do evil, um, who do what, evil, uh, do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it's God's will that you should silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. As God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, who for them was the head of state. So keep that in mind. Honor. Pray for. Be honest on your taxes. I don't think we can figure out how to take this idea from Jesus and apply it to all of the political division in our country or community in like the next two minutes or whatever. But there's three simple things that we can do. There's three simple things that we can do. First, we can give our ultimate allegiance to Jesus. Obviously, there is a limit to our obedience to the government. There will be, and there have been all throughout history, moments where it's the Christian thing to do to resist the government. The disciples had to say to the Sanhedrin when charged not to speak about the resurrection of Jesus, we must obey God rather than you. But not everything is that moment. We should prophetically denounce. We're going to lose our credibility if we don't. We should prophetically denounce the idolatry, the sinfulness of images like January 6th. People standing alongside erected gallows outside of the Capitol building wearing Jesus Saves shirts while chanting, hang Mike Pence. We are to honor our rulers. We are to obey the government as far as we can, as long as they are not asking us to violate our convictions. And then third, we can and should assume the best of people who have different political positions than us. We should assume the best of people who maybe their voting ticket come this next election looks a little bit different from ours. Think about this for just a moment, and, and then we'll hit our last point, because we're Baptists and we always have three points. Think about the political diversity of Jesus' band of disciples. Even sticking with just the 12. You had backwoods guys, no uh, formal education, just regular guys who were like farmers and fishermen. You had men who were sympathetic towards the Roman government. Matthew, a former tax collector, I don't know if you have any close friends that work for the IRS. This is what it would be like. So you've got, you, you've got good old boys. You've got government employees. You have members of Jesus' band of disciples who are actually connected to and have sympathies 
towards the zealots. And here they all are in this new community of people who've been radically changed because like, we're not pitting our hopes on overthrowing Rome or, or pacifying this terrorist group or things just remaining the way they've always been. Like, our hope is now Jesus. Our king is now Jesus. And therefore, like, we don't have to, to be at each other's throats about our political differences. That's only going to happen as we look to Jesus together and give him our final allegiance. So we should receive Jesus as a son first. And secondly, we should honor him above all other allegiances. Third, and I'm going to go through this really, really quickly, but we should trust Jesus's power over death. In this next conversation that Jesus has, he comes um, and he meets with, and he has a conversation with a group sent from the Sadducees. Verse 18 says, the Sadducees, they came to him and um, they were the ones who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Mark is letting us know about the Sadducees who we've discussed before. Uh, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, right? Y'all grew up SBC. You've heard that. But they were, like the Pharisees were the religious and political right, the Sadducees were the religious and political left. And they had lots of disagreements with the Pharisees. They rejected all the books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures outside of the first five, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they disagreed strongly with the idea of the resurrection from the dead, which is clearly spoken of in the Hebrew scriptures, this day at the end of time when all the righteous and the right, the unrighteous and the righteous will be raised to new bodies. And they rejected that idea. And they introduced this, this sneering question meant to just poke fun at Jesus in verse 18. They asked him, the Sadducees, they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, a man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There are seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So they're just trying to create this ridiculous scenario in which they press Jesus to say, yeah, okay, maybe the resurrection is kind of a silly idea, or I don't know, and destroy his credibility as a public theologian in this debate. But they're drawing upon the, the concept from Deuteronomy 25, 25 uh, that it was your responsibility if you had a brother who died and left a, a wife with no children, you had a responsibility to provide an heir for her as a means by uh, means of protecting her, providing for her, and making sure that the family line is not snuffed out. So as he often does, Jesus addresses, this is important in how we interpret his response, but he addresses the people and not the question. He addresses the people and not the question. As he says in verse 24, is this not the reason that you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Drop that in your next like theological debate, right? You know neither the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not heard in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So he bypasses the specifics of this scenario that's been set up for him. Whose 
wife is the lady who's been married seven times. And he goes right towards the main contention for him, which is their unbelief. They don't believe in the resurrection. There's no point talking about the specifics of the scenario they've set up. Jesus' response is, is basically, in a nutshell, we could go a lot more in depth into this, but in a nutshell, Jesus is saying, like, that's not going to be a concern in heaven. We're going to be like the angels in heaven. It's going to be a, a radically different experience as we are transformed and in, in this new, like, physical place. Like, as Scripture discusses the experience of heaven, we know it's a, a real place, a physical place, a renewed place where you and I will have new new, transformed, resurrected bodies, and we're not going to have the concerns of, of this world in this life. And Jesus is basically saying, like, it's, it's not going to be a concern. We should be careful and not put words in Jesus's mouth here, because almost every time I've ever heard this passage preached, I've heard pastors say stuff like, this, Jesus is teaching us that, like, marriage won't be important in heaven, or that, like, our our marriage relationships will just be dissolved and won't matter anymore. We'll just kind of be genderless, sexless beings in heaven. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. Given how important marriage is to this life as this signpost of the love between God and Christ and, and the church, I have a hard time understanding the idea that our, our marriages, which display the gospel, will cease to matter in heaven. So I, I think we should be careful in not going beyond what Jesus says in these words. But he connects their unbelief with this concept that he glosses and just mentioning the covenant that God is the God of the patriarchs who were dead when in Exodus chapter 2 God described himself as the God of these three dead guys, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Jesus, he's communicating the principle that God is the God of of the living, and he is faithful to his promises that are going to be fulfilled ultimately in the resurrection of his people. So what does this mean for us today? As we think about our hope in Jesus, I don't think for a lot of us, Restoration members, our, our big hang-up with unbelief is the resurrection of Jesus. But the same thing that was going on in the hearts of the Sadducees is at work in, in my heart and your heart constantly. So, so let me ask you this question. What does, what does your disbelief look like? We should, I think the lesson for us here, as, as Jesus addresses the heart of the issue, is that we should trust the power of God to do what he says he'll do. That's, that's what was the root of the fruit of their unbelief in the resurrection and therefore their desire to discredit Jesus in this way. But we should trust that God is this God of power and resurrection and life. We should trust that Jesus in his resurrection proves that God has the power to keep his promises towards us. So again, what is your disbelief taking the form of this week? Is it a, a, a sense of hopelessness that a situation in your life will change, that a relationship will be restored? Is it a, it is a, is it a sense of, of hopelessness as, as you look and are serving, loving, talking about Jesus with, with people in your life who are just bent in self-destructive lifestyles and you just are, you've lost hope that they are going to change? Does your hopelessness, does your unbelief take the form of just thinking that all is lost at work or in your marriage or, or with your children? 
What form does your unbelief take? We should be reminded by Jesus and the power of his resurrection that he has the power to do all that he says he'll do and keep all of his promises towards us and work all things together for our good and for his glory. So my prayer for you today is from Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul, he says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And focus on verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, so that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. So let's receive Jesus. Let's honor him supremely. And let's trust in his mighty power to keep his promises towards us. We have the joy of taking the Lord's Supper together in just a moment as our band comes now to, to lead us in a final song. And we invite you to partake with us and to celebrate the love of God expressed through the cross as Jesus died as our substitute. We celebrate the Supper weekly as a reminder of that love expressed for us in the death of Christ. If you're a baptized follower of Jesus, come and get the elements from the left and right tables as we play for just a moment. Uh, return to your seat and one of our pastors will lead us together in taking the supper. So let's pray.